welcome back to Indie Comics. We are here today. I'm your host, Maddie, and I'm here with the very handsome Brandon. Hello, it's me. He's my fiance, so I have to say that. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's dashingly handsome. And we also have the very handsome Barry, is it Corbet? Are you French Corbett. at all? Corbett. Corbett. Oh, he's, you know, he's about the T's. I'm, my last name's Desjardins, so it's very French. I'm used to He's not Corbett. So Barry Corbett, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm a, I'm a cartoonist from the Boston area. I've been around uh, a lot of years, done quite a few things, panel cartoons, comic strips, and right now I've put out a graphic novel. That is a very succinct uh, description of a very long and amazing career. Um, in, in all kinds, I mean, you're, you're, I don't know if cartoons is the right description of, of some of them, but um, your comics and cartoons have been everywhere um, and you have a, a great history, but Terminal Velocity, which is your graphic memoir, um, out now, so everybody go check it out. He's got a lot of other amazing stuff too, um, is what we're here to talk about today. You know, to, to begin though, what got you into comics in the first place? I mean, it seems like you've been drawing and doodling and telling stories since you were quite young. Oh, yeah. As long as I can remember, probably five, six years old, uh, I could always draw. It was comic strips and comic books, like most of these other cartoonists that got me into it, Batman, Superman, and uh, all the superhero yeah. stuff. Um, later on, I got heavily into the, the newspaper comics, and that's really what I wanted to do when I was young. So I focused on that my early part of my career. That's awesome. What encouraged you then to make it a career, right? Like, to kind of go from, I enjoy this, to this is... Everything. Well, I did. I took a little break in between. I worked as a graphic designer for you know, about mm -hmm. 30 years to pay the bills. But um, yeah. when I hit my late 30s, I went to a comic convention uh, and uh, got talking to one of the artists. I'd gotten away from it, hadn't drawn anything for about 10 years. Wow. And I sat down in the cafe afterwards. I started sketching on a napkin and something just hit me. It was like, wow, this is why am I not doing this? This is what I was meant to do. And uh, since then, I really focused my energies on. First of all, creating a comic strip. I was looking to develop a syndicated comic strip, like Peanuts or you know any of those Get Fuzzy, any of those famous ones. So I spent yeah. a good ten years working on those. That was the first third of my career. What, what inspired you to really transition over to like the comic book realm since you did that for so long? Right. Well, I always loved. I after that convention, I got back into the comic book, started buying them again, reading them keeping up with all the you know the major publishers dc and marvel and all that but um I, in between the comic strips i started working on um panel cartoons because it was easier to sell them make some money off them so i would focus on uh magazines mostly because that's that's the best market for selling panel cartoons you know in a single box like the far side and from there i spent about eight or nine years on that and then i'd always been a fan of um alternative comics like you know, memoirs and um, people like Seth and Dan Klaus and um, yeah. Harvey Pekow. Actually, it was Harvey Pekow was one of the big influences. Uh, I read his early work. He did that um, uh, that series, with mostly talking about his own experiences. And, and uh, they even put out a movie about him, a pretty good movie. Hmm. And... So I started this novel. The idea at first was just I had all these interesting stories of crazy little things that happened to me. Some of the early work was Chris Ware, Phoebe Gleckner, all those alternative cartoonists. Mm. And of course, uh, I mentioned Harvey Pika. 
uh, whose series was based on just these interesting little stories from his own life that weren't even anything real eventful. He would write about everyday topics, you know, a trip to the grocery store or something, you turn it into an interesting story. So I began to think about the stories of all the things that had happened to me. And if you'd read the book, you know that quite a few things had happened to me. But initially, <laughs> it was meant to be humorous initially. I'd started out with some of the, the, um, the funny stories that happened to me. And after a while, I drew them up as one or two page incidents. But after a while, I started running out of the funny stories. <laughs> and it, it turned into something else. I started writing more of a personal memoir type of thing. And it actually became kind of a cathartic experience as I, as I start to remember these stories. I remembered more interesting and more traumatic things that had happened to me, some more traumatic, some some very um, painful. Yeah. And I started writing about that stuff, too, and it actually became a cathartic experience. That was actually something that I uh, I thought we'd get into this later, but um, you, okay. you really open up in this. And I think that's something that I love so much about, you know, kind of memoir graphic novels and comics that you really dive into the psyche of the creator. You know, a lot of times when you're talking about something fictional, the core of it, of course, is who you are. Um, but there's all these layers on top of it. And with something like this, there's really nowhere to hide, right? It's just right, you yeah. about your life. And um, you have these really funny inside. I mean, one of the ones towards the beginning was about the chameleon. <laughs> and that one, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. These, these things I'd forgotten about. And they started to come back to me as I started to draw this thing up. Yeah, the chameleon was a painful story. And obviously, you haven't, your um, people listen to the interview haven't read the book yet. But, you know, we went to the circus as a 10 year old kid. Bonham and Bailey came to Boston Garden and they were selling little pet chameleons in, in the vendors' booths. And you could buy a chameleon on a little chain and he would sit on your shoulder while you watched the circus. So, I took the chameleon home and, and started toying around with him. I brought him outside to show one of my friends. He was still attached to a little chain was attached to my finger and the other end was attached to his leg. One of my friends started to tease the chameleon without thinking I gave him a shove to keep him away from the animal. But what happened is my hand pulled the string taut and pulled the leg right off the poor little creature. Oh no. Killed the, <laughs> killed the lizard. And it was, I just felt awful about it, but um, it just Sounds like a little story, but to me at the time, being 10 years old, it was horribly traumatic. I killed it. Oh, yeah. It was traumatic just reading it. <laughs> but I, mean, I think that's something that's so evocative of your work is it's these little vignettes, these little one to two page, you know, some are longer, but for the most part, they're one or two pages of these moments in life. And I think you capture that so well where, you know, it's something that could be really simple or it could be something like that that's, you know, more dramatic and maybe scarring, but yeah. it, it tells the story of your life and the fact that they're real is unbelievable in some ways with all of your skydiving and uh, actual diving and <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah, you're a very friendly person, much, much more than I am. Um, but I, I think, you know, going through those, it's such a human lesson. And I love the way that they're, they go back and forth, as you say in the intro, like memories, um, where some are when you're younger, some are when you're older, and it's not necessarily chronological. And I thought that was really lovely. Yeah. Very relatable. <laughs> Very relatable for all facets and times of your life, regardless of your own personal experiences. Everyone can relate to some story in one way or another. Yeah, sure. Every day life is profound. 
Yeah. And I think that really, and that's something that like, I grew up on far side <laughs> and uh, my family was very, very into Larson. And, and I think those little stories, you know, we love Superman. We love the big, you know, epic comics. And there's a right, lot of amazing yeah. indie comics that I like that, but something that just takes it down to the bare minimum really of like, this is life. And these are things that, you know, can be profound that are just everyday things. And it, it almost take, makes you take stock of everything and then think about what are those moments in your own life? And um, what was it like for you? You know, you kind of mentioned this, but digging into your past really, I'm, it sounds like it started as kind of this fun, like let's make some comedy sketches and, and got a lot deeper and darker. And you talk about losing your brother um, at six and dealing with your father and going to therapy and all of these things that are just really, really profound um, and big life moments. What was that like for you kind of putting it on a page and then sharing it with the world? It was much more emotional than I expected it to be, actually. Um, I just began to thought I'd tell the story, but the more I got into it, the pain just kind of resurfaced as I was drawing up these pages. Uh, what happened to me was at six years old, my older brother um, came down with appendicitis. He was about eight, five days short of his birthday. And they didn't get it in time, and he, he died. He passed away. And the family had a really hard time with it because it was so sudden, and they didn't quite know how to handle it. So they didn't even tell me he had died. Oh. And they kept coming up with excuses and, and saying, well, he's just in the hospital. You'll see him in a few weeks. You'll see him in a few months until yeah. it started to become a couple of years. And I just stopped asking about him. But the pain was still there. It was just repressed. And since I never really dealt with it, I never had a chance to grieve. This anger was building up inside me and I didn't recognize what it was. And it came up in my later years in my relationships when I started dating women and I would not let anyone get close to me. Uh, we'd have a great relationship going. We'd be dating. Everything's going fine. All of a sudden, I'd just break up with them out of the blue and they couldn't figure out what had happened. It was because they were getting close to me. I did not want that. I would not let anyone close to me. In writing it, did you kind of, were you able to kind of rehash that within yourself and um, come to terms with all that or have you already kind of I, well, I had done the work working with a psychologist in my 30s and and he had uh, had me rest back to childhood and try and find the root of all that anger and it really obviously was my brother's death but it was more or less um the loss of your family when when a sibling dies you don't just lose your brother the whole family has changed forever and that anger was inside of me and i needed a target for it as i got older i couldn't suppress the anger and when I discovered ice hockey, I found out, well, you know what? Here's something I can channel this anger into. There's always someone out there on the yeah. rink trying to cause trouble, getting a little too physical. You can always find someone like that and go pick a fight with them. So that's what <laughs> happened. <laughs> I would go out there, pick a fight, and, it, and we'd slug it out, and I'd feel better afterwards. But that is not a good way to process your emotions. It's just how I dealt with it at the time. Years later, when I got into therapy, I was actually able to make some progress and improve on my relations. To when the I point where I got married. <laughs> yeah, and congratulations, you have kids. And um, yeah. I think that was such a beautiful kind of journey of watching. I think coming into this book, I was like, okay, it's just fun little stories. And then it gets a little deeper and it gets a little deeper. And then, you know, when you pull out of it, you get this beautiful snapshot of a life. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, a lot of, because of the amount of content and because you dive so, dive is kind of ironic, but right. <laughs> uh, dive so quickly into each moment, you know, like each one's usually just a page or two. It's really amazing because you, you dive. Um, Skydive. 
Yeah, exactly. You skydive right into, you know, all these little moments. It's almost like a bunch of photographs that then you put together in this beautiful album. And I think, you know, that was something that that really struck me too, is being able to zoom out and see all of it, right? The context of these little moments from, you know, the the chameleon all the way to you know, getting married and having children and, and understanding how you moved through your life is really beautiful. Cause a lot of times when we do do look at memoirs, it's kind of this little chronological moment where it tells a story beginning, middle, end. And this, because it's so different really than anything, you know, I can think of that I've read. Um, it's it funny. Is a little different, yeah. The thrill seeking is really a big part of it because that was another way I dealt with the pain. I just pushed the pain away by, seeking bigger and bigger thrills and um, once you get a taste of adrenaline it's it's like a drug you want more of it you find yourself as I said playing hockey even hockey wasn't exciting enough I had to get into fist fights (laughs) when you get into a fist fight or jump out of an airplane the adrenaline kicks in uh, your heart your pulse races your your blood flows quickly all the colors seem brighter a sound seems sharper you feel more alive than ever before and you want to get back to that stage at some point. It's, it's just like a drug. So I was using this uh, to avoid my my real problems, my real issues, until I was able to delve into psychotherapy and solve those problems. Yeah. I get all these little stories out of it. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, therapy sometimes can be taboo, right? And I think this tells such a wonderful story about how it helped you and help you kind of contextualize the way that you lived with this. Like, I am not a thrill seeker. I am very happy to be in a safe place with both feet on the ground. Um, but I totally understand where that impulse comes from. And even the way that you are really open about looking for control over life and death and fear and, you know, kind of having this little moment where you were flying, you know? And I think um, I think that was really beautiful and interesting, especially for someone that is not at all like that, <laughs> to be able to read and understand. And I, I think you really, um, you really hit us with that. And also just these little lessons of how to do or not to do things, right? You uh, did some diving. It's hard to describe which diving because you did so many kinds, but diving underwater um, and, you know, had some issues and you passed your scuba test because you were calm despite the issues, right? And things like that, that are just these little lessons. Um, and then alternatively, maybe some things not to do. I'm really scared to have uh, any sons in the future now after reading all of your exploits. Oh my God, the things that can happen when you raise children. <laughs> it's out of control completely. Right, well, what do you want your readers to take away from your work? You know, like, is there one main theme or one main lesson that you'd like for them to kind of walk away from reading um, reading Terminal Velocity? Well, that that is an interesting question that, um, that life is a journey, I imagine, and that you can work through your problems as difficult as they seem if, you, if you're willing to dig down and face that those feelings, those emotions, rather than push them aside. It, it took years of therapy to get to that point for me, and I was fortunate in that I had a very good psychologist working with me. I imagine if you didn't get the right person to work with, you might never get to these breakthrough moments. Sure. So I guess that's the message. Keep plugging. <laughs> With that, your life like, just gives off so many messages that like people can take away, like regardless of how old they are. Was there a specific audience that you were trying to give these messages off to, or just anyone going through life in general? A specific audience? No, I, I think it's a niche market. The memoir, the um, the alternative cartoon, cartooning market. People like uh, Klaus and and uh, 
Adrian Tomina and uh, Chris Ware. Those, those, that's kind of the market, the same market that I was shooting for, I guess. But obviously, I'm happy if anyone reads the book. And what has that process been? I mean, you have your own publishing house, um, shall we say? And and what is it like, kind of going through your career and publishing your own stories and owning your own work? You know, that's something that this is an indie comics podcast, right? We're all about independent comics, and that comes with a lot. It's a lot of hard work, but it's also a lot of ownership. And it's so a double-edged sword. Yeah, you, you it, cartooning is the only profession where you you have to be the writer, the artist, the distributor, the marketer. You know, the billing department. So, and I'm not good at all those skills. I'm pretty good at drawing. That's about it. <laughs> so, with that, it's like you're uh, good at all of them. <laughs> I was going to say, what led you towards indie comics in that sense, then, if you're um, not as strong in the other factors of it? Well, the freedom where you don't have to have work with an editor. It's pretty much wide open. There's no limits and what kind of story you can tell. Um, there's no one uh, telling you. You can't put a swear word in there. Not that I did, but uh, total creative expression is a uh, is a wonderful thing. Uh, the the back side the the bad side of that sort is you have to market it yourself, and you have to spend at least fifty percent of your time marketing, selling, and, and looking for new markets and avenues, uh, new outlets for your work. The internet obviously has been a big boon for us, but. At the same time, there are maybe 300,000 other cartoons competing for that same dollar that you're trying to get. It has been an interesting time in comics are more accessible than ever, but it also means that there's more of them than ever. So it's a lot of noise to kind of cut through, but um, it seems like you're doing a great job of this. So. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, what's some advice that you would maybe give to other creators who are starting out or who are you know, self-publishing for the first time um, and kind of getting into the business? Uh, don't be afraid to change. Your style will evolve over the years and it will only get stronger. Uh, don't be afraid to talk to anyone. Don't be afraid of rejection. It's probably the biggest lesson I've learned because if you can't handle rejection, you shouldn't be in cartooning, that's for sure. <laughs> but you can develop that thick skin. The more you do it, the more it just doesn't bother you after a while. It's just you just shake it off, move on to the next market. Has that been a big lesson for you too? Because I feel like that's everybody's going to deal with rejection no matter what <laughs> what business they're in. But I think specifically with publishing anything, you're going to hit a lot of that and it's going to be difficult. And um, is that something that you've kind of learned about yourself in this process? I have. I learned a lot of that from trying to sell panel cartoons. Mm. When you're a panel cartoon artist, you, you're, um, what you typically do is send out about 10 cartoons every week to wow. all the major magazines. What happens when you do that? You're competing with about 30 or 40 other professional cartoonists and they're sending their best work every month, 10 of their best cartoons against 10 of your best. And the editor might pick out one or two that month from 300 samples. So your odds are very low in making a sale, even if your work is good. So you're going to get rejected. Even if you're a solid performer, your, your work is going to get rejected until you hit the right market. So what we normally do is we go after the highest price market first. Like the New Yorker, they would they would pay top dollar for a panel cartoon. You get in the New Yorker, you're golden. <laughs> After that, you get uh, maybe Reader's Digest, and then maybe some of the smaller magazines like um, uh, First for Women, Barons, Prospect Magazine, um, Christianity Today. All the, they have less of a circulation, but they might pay about half of what the New Yorker would pay, or a third. Once you get rejected from there, you move your way down the line until you finally hit a sale at some point, and then at the same time. 
you see you coming up with a new batch for the next month and send them out all of the same process goes on all of again. So the rejection is painless after a while because it's just a constant, constant phase of rejection one after the other till you make a sale. That is a really crazy industry. <laughs> it's interesting yeah, yeah. to kind of hear the back end of it, um, especially because, you know, they're publishing all the time, but you have to think about that competition and it's, it's the same in the comics world, right? And you're, you're competing against everyone else for views and for purchases and, and all of that. Yeah. Now, the idea initially was to become a syndicated cartoonist so that you would be expected to supply six cartoons a week. And you'd have an editor to look them over basically to make sure there's nothing objectionable or nothing spelled wrong and all that. And then, but that's the product you send out at the end of the week. And then you move on to the next week. You don't have to actually sell it to anyone because you have uh, the salespeople from a syndicate out there selling your work to hundreds of newspapers and magazines around the country. Well, and obviously that market has changed. Yeah. Well, and, and I can't imagine putting out that much content. Like, how do you keep ideas flowing? Like, what do you do about writer's block? That's what, yeah, that's the question you get more often because it's almost impossible to come up with a, a cartoon idea every single day. And yet people do it. What we do is they come in bunches. Um, you keep a notebook with you everywhere you go. And because if you get an idea and you say, oh, that's a great idea, I'll never forget that. Five minutes later, it's gone. <laughs> like, <laughs> you cannot remember that idea for the life of you. <laughs> so before we had the cell phones, I would have to, I'd keep the notebook, but now I can, I could jot it down on a memo and keep it on the phone forever. And boy, is that a godsend. So you, you end up with a bunch of ideas. And by the end of the week, you've got six or seven good ones you can draw around. Does it change your perception of the world to kind of always be looking for ideas that way? You know, because I think absolutely, absolutely. you're always analyzing, you're always looking for that joke. How can I twist that? How can I turn that into a joke? How can I make that funny? You're you always must be on. a funny guy to hang out with. Is there anything else that you would want to share with your readers? Um, and kind of as we look to wrap this up, um, what do you want people to kind of expect from you in the future? Do you do you have anything coming up? Yeah, well, well, my newest project is um, another comic strip called The League of uh, Evil Mad Evil Scientists, which is a bag <laughs> a day type of thing, like a typical newspaper comic strip. And you can find that on Comic Fury right now. And um, the rest of my work you can find at Drunk Duck and Smack Jeeves and my website Corbett Features. And I'm going to continue to produce uh, Terminal Velocity. I've, I've got almost 20 new stories since I published the, the memoir. Oh, wow. Wow. So, you know, every couple of weeks I'll put up a new story and uh, I, don't, I won't run out of ideas because the next volume is going to deal with so many years I spent as a paranormal investigator. You've had a full life. <laughs> <laughs> if I can do like a third, a quarter, a fifth of the things that you have done. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There, didn't I? I I'm not done yet. <laughs> well, no, no, definitely. I'm just saying even so far, like you have, you've done so many things and I can't imagine doing any of, <laughs> at least hopefully not getting into bar fights. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, that's right. Bar fights too. I didn't put that in there. <laughs> Exactly. Too many to remember. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Terminal Velocity is such a cool and interesting and unique and amazing comic. It's really heartfelt. It's really genuine. Um, I really, really enjoy it. I definitely suggest everyone go and pick it up, read it. Um, 
excited for volume two. <laughs> yeah. um, you can get them at uh, Indie Planet, both digital and print versions. Wonderful. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us, Barry. You are awesome. And uh, let us know next time you're skydiving. Uh, I will not go with you, but I will watch. <laughs> thank you. And, uh, and thank you, loyal listeners, for joining in. You can check out our other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all podcast apps. You can also check out our website, thegrandgeekgathering.com, for articles, videos, and more. Please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell us if you have ever been skydiving. Tell us if you would never do it. Tell us how much you love Terminal Velocity. If you've been in bar fights, there's all kinds of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, amazing different things in this book that you can relate to or totally not relate to if you are me and like to stay safe and at home. Uh, you can stay updated on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we stream on Twitch and Let's Play. The intro is provided by Carla Carlisle Loren, and you can buy Terminal Velocity from a bunch of different places. You can get it from Barry's website. It's corbettfeatures.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T features.com. It'll be in the description under this podcast. You can also get it on Amazon, Google Books, Indie Planet, all the places Barry mentioned. You have no excuse. Go buy it. Go check it out. Uh, so come and join the gathering. Have a great week and GGG. Grand Geek Gathering